Thanks for listening to this sermon recording from Liberty Family Church in Hillsville, Victoria, Australia. All of our sermons are available for free online, and we encourage you to subscribe to our sermon podcast through iTunes or by clicking the button on our website. If you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, or would like more information about our church, head to www.libertyfamilychurch.net.au. God bless you, and we pray that this sermon recording encourages you and strengthens your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, Liberty Family Church, and uh, good morning, Liberty Family Church, if you're joining us online. Uh, welcome this morning. Um, most people know me, but for those who don't, my name's Peter Rogers and I'm part of the eldership team here at Liberty Family Church. Well, we made it. We made it. We're finally in the New Testament. After nine months in the Old Testament, we're finally in the New Testament. A couple of days ago, Jenny and I celebrated our younger daughter's graduation, actually her second graduation. And after eight years of study, uh, she's finally finished those formal elements of study and now she's just got a lifetime of study ahead of her as she practices as a clinical psychologist. But uh, we were down at, at Deakin University in Geelong and uh, there were plenty of photo opportunities to capture the moment and one of them was uh, in front of a garden scene with a pink neon sign that said, I made it. I made it. Well, today we've made it. We're finally in the New Testament after nine months. And it probably feels a, a similar way, really. Um, I'm quite keen on studying the chronological Bible, where everything is put chronologically in order and you read things in context relating to each other. But if, if you read the Bible with a yearly uh, Bible planner that way, it's about October that you finally hit the, the New Testament after reading all the genealogies and the history, etc., etc., etc. October, you finally hit the New Testament and you think, whew, I've made it. Uh, well, it's a bit like that for us today also. We've finally hit the New Testament. And as we hit the New Testament, as we'd all probably know, we hit the Gospels, and we'd all be quite familiar and recognise those first four Gospel books or accounts in the New Testament, and we can all um, know and say together, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We know them off, off by heart, I would think. But really, there's only one Gospel. There's only one Gospel, and it's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, but there are four different written accounts and each of them have their own perspective, their own flavour, their own purpose and their own audience in mind. This word gospel comes from a Greek word which means good news or to announce good news. And in history, the Greeks used this word to announce the good news of a victory. And 
in the context of the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, the Greek word for gospel or good news was used to announce the good news of the, the birth of the emperor or his coming of age or his accession to the throne. But there's also an equivalent Hebrew, Old Testament word, um, the equivalent word of the Greek word for gospel. And it's also used in the Old Testament to signify and to introduce the good news, the good news of victory. And Isaiah used this equivalent Hebrew Old Testament word for the gospel to signify the bringing of the good news, God's good news, of victory over sin and death, and to usher in and bring the good news that God rules. Okay. This is how the prophet Isaiah put it in the, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 52, verse 7, to announce uh, the good news of God's victory. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, that's Jerusalem, your God reigns. The God of Jerusalem reigns. And as we open the Gospels, we find that Jesus Christ claimed to be the messenger of this good news. And in fact, Jesus himself was and is the good news. Jesus said that he was anointed by God, sent by God to announce this good news, to proclaim the, that there was going to be peace between God and man and to proclaim salvation from sin and death and to proclaim in Jerusalem, which is what Jesus did, that God rules, God reigns. Okay? As Jesus began his ministry in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, he read these words again from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and he said that today, in the presence of all those hearers in the synagogue in Capernaum, that that prophecy had been fulfilled. Jesus was the bearer of good news and Jesus himself was the content and the substance of that good news. You know, we call ourselves Christians and we do that because our faith is in Christ, in Jesus Christ. That's why we call ourselves Christians. So Christianity, therefore, is an historical faith based on a historical person, a real person who's lived and walked on this earth just like us. And because of that, the historical documents that present Jesus to the world are essential to establish the truth of our faith, the foundation of our faith, the bona fides of our faith. I wonder if you've ever stopped 
to think or consider just how reliable are the documents of the life, death and the resurrection and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Are they reliable? Can we trust them? Because to put our faith in Jesus Christ, first we need to put our faith in the gospel authors. So let's take a, a brief time this morning and see if we can do that. See if we can put our faith in the gospel authors. So just who were these men? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And can we trust them? Can we trust their accounts? Because if we can't, our faith is on shaky ground. But if we can, then our faith is on solid ground. And we can boldly proclaim our faith to the world. So let's check it out. 2,000 years ago, there was a, a strong oral tradition in Israel and the other nearby ancient cultures. History, important events and traditions were passed down in stories, accurately retold from one generation to the next. Much like what we hear of the, the culture and the traditions and the history of our indigenous Australian Aborigines, storytelling was a major part of the ancient cultures. And that's how it was in, in the days of Jesus, 2,000 years ago. In those days when the eyewitnesses were still alive and available to pass on the details of Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, there wasn't really a great need for a written gospel. And the, the spoken word and the stories of the eyewitnesses were held in much higher esteem and more highly regarded than any written document. And Jesus, in the time that he spent with his disciples for three years, he ministered to them in word and told them stories and parables and, and taught them. Three years, he privately instructed them with stories. And so after Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples remembered those stories, Jesus' words and his deeds, long after he died. <coughs> Excuse me, long after he'd gone to heaven. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all the things that he had taught them in those three years. And so it was these disciples who treasured that deposit, those three years of Jesus' teaching. They treasured that and they passed it down in the Christian faith community that they led after Jesus' resurrection. So originally, these accounts, the stories of the eyewitnesses, that was enough. That was all that was needed. And they spread, those eyewitness disciples, they spread the good news about Jesus. That's what Jesus told them to do in the Great Commission. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They were eyewitnesses. And the stories that they told, that was enough to spread the good news about Jesus. The apostles spoke about what they'd seen, what they'd heard, and thousands, thousands believed them and put their faith in Jesus Christ. On trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council, after healing 
the lame man at the temple, Peter and John, uh, told that they couldn't help themselves. This is what they, this is what they had to do. They were eyewitnesses. They'd seen it all. Um, Peter and John gave this defence before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and, and 20. Um, they were asked by what authority they were doing all this. And Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, or to him, to God? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So that was great. Why the eyewitnesses and the disciples were alive, they spread these stories about all the time that they spent with Jesus. But as time went by, these eyewitnesses gradually disappeared. They died, they got old like the rest of us. Some of them died for their faith. They were martyrs. And so after these eyewitnesses gradually started disappearing, the need for a written account, a written record for the life, the death, the teaching uh, regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the need for that became obvious. And so that's when Matthew, Mark, Luke and John got to work. And that's what we have to rely on today. You can't go and question the eyewitnesses. You can't cross-examine them. But what we have today is those written records. So just who were these men and how reliable are they and can we trust them? Because if we can't trust them, our faith is on shaky ground. So let's see. Let's see together, just very briefly, if we can trust these written accounts of these men. So let's start off and begin with Matthew. Who was he? Well, you probably know that Matthew was a Jewish tax collector and he was called by Jesus to follow and become a disciple. And in those days, tax collectors were probably you know, the lowest of the low. Um, they were despised. Um, they were considered the low alongside thieves, harlots, prostitutes, they were revenue raisers of the hated occupation government of Rome. And they were known for their high taxes, their extortion of people, and they were ruthless. And part of the reason that they were ruthless is that they worked on high commission. And so they became rich themselves, as you read the Gospels um, about some of the tax collectors like uh, Zacchaeus, etc. And so they were hated they were hated and to make matters worse Matthew was a Jew he was one of them and uh, so he was considered a, a, a traitor by his people and so you might ask the question what on earth was Jesus thinking when he called Matthew to be a disciple you remember Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost to save sinners. And Matthew was one of the worst, according to the standards of the day. Matthew was one of the worst. So the fact that Matthew, as a tax collector, considered to be one of the worst of the sinners, was called to be a member of the 12 disciples was a game changer. Matthew is an outstanding symbol of the good news of the gospel. Matthew shows that all people, regardless of how bad their sin, even the worst of sinners, are called 
into the kingdom of God by repentance and faith. And perhaps today you too might be thinking that your sin is perhaps beyond redemption. Perhaps you're thinking that your private sin, the sin that only you and God know about, perhaps you're thinking that is so bad, so despicable, so evil that God could never forgive you. Well, Matthew's gospel blows that theory right out of the water. And that's good news. That's the gospel. No one is beyond redemption. Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel was to share that good news, that no one is beyond redemption. And he wanted to bring the Christ of the Old Testament to his fellow Jews and show from the Old Testament witness that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, was indeed the promised Messiah, the Saviour. And so in Matthew's Gospel, we've got an eyewitness account, a written testimony of an eyewitness that Jesus was the Saviour that was promised in Jewish history and by the Old Testament prophets. Matthew wanted his fellow hearers, his Jews, to also put their faith in Jesus and be saved from sin, just like he had. Well, that's one eyewitness, but... I don't think you can get convicted on the evidence of potentially one eyewitness. And I guess we can ask ourselves the question, is one eyewitness enough to convince your jury? Maybe, maybe not. Let's check out Mark, the second gospel author. Who was, who was he? Well, Mark was the, the son of a, a woman called Mary, not Jesus' mother, a different Mary. He was the cousin of Barnabas and he was an assistant or helper to Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys before he returned home to Jerusalem prematurely, much to the disappointment of the Apostle Paul. But fortunately for Mark, the story doesn't end there. Paul later speaks well of Mark as his companion in Rome. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, My fellow prisoner... Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. <clears throat> so things had turned around for Mark in the eyes of Paul. And finally, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul pays high tribute to Mark's service. He seems to have redeemed himself in, in Paul's eyes. Uh, Paul writes, only Luke is with me. Uh, this is from Rome in imprisonment. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So Paul's opinion of Mark got turned around and he, uh, Paul held him in high esteem, but he wasn't the only one. Uh, Mark was also warmly mentioned by the Apostle Peter as my son, Mark. Uh, the Apostle Peter uh, wrote from Rome in 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 13, to the churches. Uh, and the Apostle Peter wrote, She who is in Babylon, and what he's talking about is the church in Rome, she who is in Babylon, the church in Rome, chosen together with you, chosen for salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, sends you her greeting, as does my son Mark. That's a pretty intimate term of endearment, my son Mark. 
So Mark was very close to Peter and to Paul. And Mark was his Roman name, but in fact, Mark was actually a Jew from Jerusalem and his Jewish name was, was John. So in essence, he was more accurately known as Mark John or you might know him as John Mark. And Mark had a close relationship with the Apostle Peter in Rome, but it actually dated way back to the early days of the New Testament church, just after the resurrection of Jesus and even before, um, after Peter had a miraculous release from prison in Acts chapter 12, um, Peter knew where to find the praying church. And where did he go? He went to Mark's house. And it shows that Mark and his family held a prominent position in the, the early embryonic New Testament church. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12 to 13, we read of Peter after he'd been released miraculously from prison. When this had dawned on him, that he'd been released miraculously from prison, he went, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. So this is the Mark who wrote this second gospel. Uh, Peter went to this house of, of Mark and his mother Mary, where many had people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. So Mark was really well known to Peter and was prominent in the, the beginnings of the New Testament church. So Mark had this really close relationship with the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul right from the very beginning. And Mark would have known Jesus during his, his life and his ministry in Jerusalem as well. All the early church historians, um, starting from the, the second century, from Papias to Irenaeus, Justin Martyr and Eusebius, they all consistently attribute to Mark the task of having interpreted for Peter when he was in Rome and having written that second gospel according to what Peter had preached after Peter had departed, whether that was by death or to a, another region, we cannot be certain. So this was the close relationship of Mark, the second gospel author, to the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And when you read Mark's gospel, it reads totally differently from the gospel of Matthew. Mark wrote an action-packed, fast-paced account of all Jesus' miraculous works and deeds. If you read through Mark, there's all this immediately and suddenly. <coughs> Excuse me. It was an action-packed account. And Mark portrays Jesus as a, a man of action, a man of power, a man of authority, a man who got the job done. And he had a purpose in mind because Mark's gospel was specifically tailored to appeal to his Roman audience because that's what the Romans understood at the time. They understood power. They understood authority. And so Mark wrote with this Roman audience in mind. And perhaps today you're listening and you are thinking a bit 
like the Roman. Perhaps you're a bit like the Roman audience. Perhaps you don't want to get bogged down in too much detail. And perhaps you just prefer to cut to the chase. Perhaps you're just more interested in the highlights package and who got the votes. Well, if that's so, then Mark's gospel is for you and it should appeal to you. Uh, Jesus gets the three votes for BOE, best on earth. And so Mark, like Matthew, is also a reliable witness of the good news of Jesus. He was there. He was there. He was in the room. He witnessed Jesus in Jerusalem and he had the eyewitness testimony passed down to him from the apostles Peter and Paul. So Mark's gospel is a written account based on that eyewitness testimony. It's brief, it's to the point, but it's fit for purpose. Written to appeal to his, own, his Roman audience and perhaps to many of us today. And that's the beautiful things about the Gospels, the four Gospel accounts. There's different things in each one of them that appeals to all our different sensibilities. But what about those of us in the, the modern world who want more? The people who want all the I's dotted, the people who want all the T's crossed. Is there a gospel account for the discerning Gentile? Not the Jew, not the Roman, but the discerning Gentile, a, a critical thinker. And today in our society, don't we live in a society like that, where people who are questioning, they have lots and lots of questions. Well, that's okay, because Jesus has the answers. So if you count yourself in that crowd as the discerning critical thinker, if you're the cynic who wants to have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed, then let me introduce you to my co-medic, Luke, and his account of the good news. And perhaps Luke's account will strike a chord with you and seal the deal as he joins all the dots and gives a written testimony regarding Jesus to the world beyond the Jews, beyond Israel, to the world beyond Rome. So if you're looking for more, then Luke's your man. And let's check him out briefly together. So who was Luke? Well, as I said, he was a physician, a doctor, but he was much more than that. He was a missionary and he was a writer. He was a historian. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament and all by the Apostle Paul whilst Paul was in prison. As we read before in Colossians 4 verse 14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. So he might only be mentioned three times in the New Testament, but Luke was certainly well known and he was particularly well known to a man called Theophilus who was the first recipient of this letter. And according to Colossians chapter 4, Luke was not a Jew. Luke was a Gentile. And he was probably born in Antioch in, in Syria, north of Israel, according to church historians Jerome and Eusebius. And in his second book, The Acts of the Apostles, Luke shows particular interest in that city or the town of Antioch. 
And the immediate reason for Luke writing this gospel was his interest in Theophilus, who was an influential person who had apparently made some move toward the Christian faith. And according to Clementines, another church historian, Theophilus was a wealthy citizen of Antioch. So if Luke also came from Antioch, and if his association with Theophilus was significant, Luke must have been greatly concerned that a full and detailed, authentic account be presented to this discriminating leader. Matthew had written from a Jewish point of view, and Mark adapted the Jewish point of view to the action-conscious Romans, but Luke wrote from a Gentile standpoint in the best grammatical Greek for the Greek-speaking world at large. The sort of language you'd have to use if you were writing a thesis. And all throughout Luke's gospel, the Gentiles belong in God's plan of redemption. And that's good news. And it's good news for us because that's who we are. We are the Gentiles. We belong in God's plan of redemption. You belong in God's plan of redemption. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Romans. It's for all nations of all times. So what about Luke? What, what did he know? Well, Luke joined Paul on his second missionary journey and he, then he was with Paul intermittently until Paul's final imprisonment in Rome. And so after participating in Paul's second and third missionary journeys, Luke was very familiar with all the gospel data. So he was well positioned to to verify, to arrange, to record the truths he'd received from a variety of sources. And this is how Luke puts it at the beginning, the introduction to his gospel account in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let's read that together. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And that's one of the reasons that we bring this message today regarding these gospel authors, that you may may know the certainty of the things that we have been taught. And with this introduction to Luke's gospel, there's three things that stand out. Firstly, the many attempts of others, many have undertaken, the many attempts of others to write accounts of that good news of Jesus must have fallen short. They must have seemed inadequate to Luke. And so with his scientific training and his command of the the Greek language, Luke must have felt an urge from God to do what others had only attempted. There had to be a better instrument 
for reaching the Gentile mind, for reaching you and I, especially among those like Theophilus who were cultured and influential. Secondly, Luke made no claim to being an eyewitness of the things he described, but rather Luke confirmed that the things recorded by him were delivered to him and to his contemporaries by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So whilst Luke wasn't in the apostolic group, he wasn't a disciple during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he does insist that the sources of his information were persons who had seen and witnessed that which had transpired from the beginning. And thirdly, Luke was no sketchy or casual inquirer. He'd followed all things closely for some time past so as to be able to write an orderly account. Luke was a deliberate and detailed historian. And from beginning to end, he's bent on relating the gospel to the world, to the empire, to all nations, for all times. So Luke's gospel is a carefully prepared research paper on the facts of the gospel for the conversion and for the confirmation of readers of the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. And that's good news for us today. Perhaps today you're sitting on the fence or perhaps you're even totally on the wrong side of the fence. You're in the wrong paddock completely in terms of faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, then Luke's gospel is a carefully written account allowing you to confidently put your faith in Jesus Christ. For those who are wavering in their faith, Luke's gospel account confirms what you have been taught. So that's the first three gospel writers. Matthew wrote memoirs for the Jews. Mark wrote memoirs for the Romans. And Luke writes historical detail and relates it to the Gentile world and the critical thinker. And now there's just one gospel left. And, but frankly, you know, I ask myself, and you might be asking yourself the same question, do you really need anything more? Isn't there enough there to uh, make up your mind? Don't Matthew, Mark and Luke say it all? So what about John's gospel? Why is it there? What's his angle? Well, if you haven't already put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're still wavering after Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John is the one who puts it bluntly to you and he lays it on the line. It's time to make a decision one way or the other. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. That's pretty blunt and confronting, but they were also Jesus' words. If you're not for me, you're against me. 2,000 years ago, the world asked, and today it still asks this question, who is Jesus? Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? You might have heard that expression. And why do we ask that question? Well, it's because Jesus said that he was the Son of God. Jesus said, in fact, that he is God. That's a bold claim to make. And who would make such a claim? A liar, a lunatic, 
or God himself. Was Jesus a liar who knew his claim to be false? Was he a lunatic? Was he mentally deranged, a deluded man who knew no better? And certainly we've had a few of those since Jesus walked the earth who made the claim to be Jesus. Or was and is Jesus actually Lord, Saviour, the Son of God, who died to take away the sins of the, of the world? Well, maybe that's the question that you're asking yourself today, either here or, or online. And perhaps it's crunch time for you and maybe it's your last chance. Who knows if we've got tomorrow, one more day. If you're feeling compelled to decide today, then, God, then John's Gospel is God's desperate plea for you to make up your mind and to choose Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus without any delay. John's gospel was written in such an emphatic tone that you might realise that Jesus is Lord and light of the world. Darkness is all around us in the world. You don't have to go to Specsavers to see that. Jesus was and is the light of the world and John in his gospel account would have you know that this is how John put it in chapter 1 verse 9 to 14 the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world he's talking about Jesus he was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own, the Jews, his own nation. But his own did not receive him. Well, at least some of them didn't. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is John's eyewitness testimony. We have seen his glory. But who was John, this fourth gospel writer? And, and should we believe his witness, his testimony. Well, John was a prominent member of the 12 apostles. John and his brother James were both sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen who lived uh, near Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee when they were called by Jesus to follow him. John was part of the inner circle of the disciples, the close three, along with his brother James and Peter. John was on the mountain when he saw the glory of Jesus with the transfiguration. And John was one of the first at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday and the first to recognise the significance of the empty tomb, that Jesus had risen from the dead. And John is linked with Peter, the Apostle Peter, in many important events in, in the book of Acts. John was with Peter when the lame man was healed outside the temple in Acts chapter 3. He was a prominent member of the Jerusalem church 
when Paul visited later. And according to Arrhenius, another church historian, John was later an elder at the church at Ephesus in modern-day Turkey before he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And John's exile on the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea during the last decade of the first century coincides with the persecution of the Christian church under the Roman Emperor Domitian. And it was on the island of Patmos that John wrote down the visions of things to come that Jesus revealed to him. A man won't risk death for something he knows to be a lie. Just ask all the Russians who are crossing the border to escape enlistment or mobilisation in Putin's war. A man won't die for something, or is not willing to die for something that he knows to be a lie. John had seen it all from the beginning to the end. He'd seen Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. And John was willing to die under Rome rather than renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know how in the end um, John died. There's lots of legends, but we don't know the, the absolute truth. But he was willing to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he was an eyewitness who knew whether it was true or not. All those things that had tra transpired. John was willing to die under Rome rather than renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And the question for us is similar but slightly different. The question for us is not whether we're willing to die under Rome rather than renounce our faith. The question for us is are we willing to announce our faith so we won't die? That's the question for us. Uh, Jesus said um, as he was asked about Lazarus and why Lazarus had died, um, you know, Mary said, you could have, you could, if you were here, you could have saved him. And Jesus' words are recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 25 and verse 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That is the gospel. That is the good news. It's the best news that mankind has ever had, ever will have. At the end of the day, the choice is ours, life or death. And it depends, it hangs on if we are willing to put our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And what do we have to go by to know whether it's all true, whether our faith is on solid ground or not? We've got the eyewitness testimony of those who were there. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses of everything that happened. Mark was with Peter, who was an eyewitness and recounted all that Peter had uh, preached in Rome. And Luke was with the Apostle Paul for a long period of time and related to us all that he'd received from the eyewitnesses. We're not relying on one eyewitness. We've got multiple eyewitnesses and multiple accounts. And each one is written to appeal to us in different ways. But all of the, the gospel writers make an appeal to us. And John, probably the most 
emphatically. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you won't die, so that you can have forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life? And if you're willing to do that, then the promise is eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And as a sign of choosing Jesus, we celebrate the communion meal together. And that's what we're going to do now.